Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. On January 6th, a mob entered the U.S. Capitol building. Their motivation stemmed from a belief that the U.S. election was being, as they put it, stolen from them, and that against all evidence, Donald Trump, and not Joseph Biden, had won the U.S. presidential election. With new information about the planning, the process, and what exactly went wrong in the police response, and what will happen now, is coming every day. Instead of trying to keep up with this flood of news, today I'm talking to two researchers about the basics. Democracy, coups, and where we can situate this in the greater history of the U.S., including in light of Black Lives Matter and in the historical context of decades of inequality. Sirena Dalam is a senior researcher at PRIO and an associate professor at the University of Oslo's Department of Political Science. Her research has recently focused on mass movements, authoritarian regimes, and how violent or peaceful protests can affect government transitions. She's part of the PRIO project Mobilizing for and Against Democracy, which asks, why do some pro-democracy movements succeed while others fail? Hovard Nigord is a PRIO research director and research professor. His current research interests include nonviolent revolutions, democracy, authoritarianism, and forecasting conflict. Welcome, Siriana and Hovard. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about the, well, what can we call it? Insurrection, attempted coup. Um, there's uh, quite a lot of terms floating around. But before we actually discuss this um, from a political science and kind of peace and conflict perspective, I'd like to just get your immediate reactions from from last week. What, what were you thinking? So, Hovar, maybe you want to go first. I know you were following this very closely, kind of minute by minute. Uh, what, what were your thoughts? No, for my, you know, I'm, uh, I was shocked. Um, I know we've been saying that a lot in the last <laughs> four years, but uh, so we were actually watching the, the vote the the um, ratification of the electoral college vote, which they sent live on, on CNN. I've never ever uh, watched that before, or even <laughs> wanted having wanted to watch it before. But uh, we were watching CNN with the kids actually <laughs> to see it happen. Uh, and then um, sometime around seven, uh, we put the kids to bed. And then when we get got back to CNN, there was no more uh, voting, but there was instead uh, rioting uh, at, at the Capitol. And, and we, we, we couldn't turn off. I think we watched CNN until into the, the wee hours uh, of, of the night. I just simply couldn't believe. Uh, I couldn't believe my eyes. Mm. Uh, and I'm still shocked by so many facets of this. I'm shocked by, you know, by the initial obvious baiting that was going on from uh, from the president of the of the US I'm I'm shocked by the behavior of the crowds I'm shocked by the by what seemed to have been a complete security failure uh, on on so many so many fronts uh, I I'm I'm really shocked uh, that we still had many 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 republicans that would uh, entertain these ridiculous uh, objections even mm. when they got back to voting uh, after after uh, all of that, it it will, will you know we'll talk about whether the U.S. is more or less uh, democratic now uh, than, than before. But I think I really felt like we were watching a democracy die in mm. in, in in real time, which was uh, which was uh, almost too much. Yeah. 
strong words and uh and i agree uh Sirianna, what about you were you also <laughs> glued to the tv screen that night yeah of course and i think in addition to sore said that being just really shocked i think just sadness and then being really upset were sort of my my, my main reactions um i guess sort of my, my main shock was was uh, towards the fact that the protesters were actually able to get, uh, or the rioters were able to get as far as they did into the U.S. Capitol Hill, and that uh, this was not crushed uh, earlier. I think I was less shocked by the fact that uh, Trump would be willing to go so far in terms of both initiating these protests and also radicalizing his protesters and really uh, encouraging this. I think that that's pretty consistent with uh, how he has been behaving uh, throughout the, the past four years. And I guess also uh, members of the Republican Party, many of uh, these individuals have also uh, demonstrated a willingness and an ability to both encourage and support Trump's uh, behavior. So I think the uh, the elite uh, reactions and behavior in all of this was sort of the probably least shocking element, although, of course, it's really sad to to see sort of how far this has gone and uh, how so many elite uh, members of U.S. democracy have uh, such a low willingness to to support uh, democratic norms at this point. So we're recording this on Monday, the 11th of January, and there's so much in the news back and forth about what, what is going to happen. I mean, Impeachment is certainly on the table. Invoking the 25th Amendment, um, which Mike Pence would have to do, is also uh, on the table, apparently. Or it says in the news that Nancy Pelosi has allegedly given him 24 hours to to decide if he's going to do that. So I don't think that we should um, talk too much about what's going to happen moving forward, because by the time this comes out on Thursday, it's all going to be irrelevant. But we are going to discuss democracy, democracy in the U.S. and and mass uh, mobilization uh, more generally, because I think it's really important to put all of this into context. And Sirianna, I'm going to start with a question for you, because you are part of the PRIO project Mobilizing for and Against Democracy, and uh, led by Helena Fielde, who unfortunately couldn't discuss with us today. But I want to start with a really uh, simple question. Uh, how democratic is the U.S. Uh, now? And how has it become less democratic in the last four years? Right. So, yes, I mean, according to most uh, global uh, indicators of democracy, such as, for instance, the varieties of, of democracy project, um, the U.S. democracy has deteriorated over the last uh, four years. Um, this is, uh, for instance, uh, due to changes such as declines in in the constraints, the institutional and also behavioral constraints on, on the executive power. Um, this is due to sort of uh, repeated attacks on the free press by uh, members of the government and the president, uh, and in general, sort of the president's lack of uh, respect for the constitution. Uh, and the U.S. democracy, according to these me- these measures, has deteriorated since 2017. So we've actually seen declines in U.S. democracy level uh, every year since uh, uh, Trump was initiated as president. Uh, but I think the key point here is that democracy is much more than simply a set of institutions that need to be present, such as the Constitution, uh, formal power sharing between uh, different branches of government, etc. Uh, it's also about the norms of behavior um, that guide all of the actors within this system. Uh, so, for instance, it's, it's crucial for democracy that the president refrains from uh, doing things such as um, uh, using a state of emergency law for his own benefits, uh, stacking the Supreme Court, 
um, I guess, firing key officials that sort of express disagreement with the president, even if mm-hmm. these measures are sort of technically within his power in the democracy. Uh, however, we've seen that, uh, again, that both the president and also other political elites have been very much willing to, to violate these norms over and over again. Uh, and this has uh, undermined democracy. And I think it's also just to also briefly mention that it's, it's not only a question about sort of institutions and, and elites deteriorating when it comes to democratic behavior. It's very much also about the parties. And, and recently, this really interesting survey just came out that um, uh, looks at all political parties globally and historically. And the study just shows really well how the Republican Party has become uh, gradually more authoritarian during recent years. And this is particularly due to the rise of populist uh, rhetoric. And this survey shows that the Republican Party is now actually closer to, to parties such as the AKP in Turkey and, and Fidesz in Hungary when it comes to the use of populist rhetoric than other um, parties and democracies. That is so interesting. And Hovar, I know that you've also um, studied some of these topics and in in December, you uh, wrote a blog post, which I found really interesting, which was uh, for the Priya blog, which countries win and lose when we add democracy to the human development index. And you basically were kind of uh, correcting or or just adding to the, the UNDP HDI where you, you said, OK, well, if we add democracy, what happens here? And the U.S. Uh, dropped two mm. uh, spots if you if you did that based on your analysis that you did with Vilde uh, Bergstad-Larsen. So I'm just wondering if maybe you want to quickly comment on this and maybe respond to Siriana's uh, point about authoritarianism and populism. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So uh, Siriana, I completely agree, of course, uh, with, with Siriana. One of the things that also happened uh, in the middle of all of this is that uh, uh, polity, which is another one of these uh, data sets that track, uh, track democracy, uh, the VDEM measure is probably better, but the polity measure is, is somewhat uh, older, uh, actually downgraded uh, the U.S. from a democratic status to a semi-democratic, or they call an a anocracy an, an status. So basically, uh, they they they're saying that uh, starting in 2020, the U.S. is no longer uh, a a democracy. But I actually think so. What I'm um, and I've been thinking a lot uh, about about that. So I think Vietnam is is right that uh, the democracy in the U.S. has deteriorated uh, over the over the course of, of the Trump uh, era. But I also see think that we we see, if you look at the long-run patterns and history of, of democracy and democratic developments in, in the US, something seems to be off, right? So if you look at many of these uh, measures, the US is less uh, democratic now uh, than it was in the uh, in the in the civil rights era, right before they all of the civil rights legislation uh, was was passed, which which seems a little bit odd, and I I think what is important to realize and and acknowledge is that uh, the U.S. has always been a system that has been more or less perfectly democratic for many parts of its citizenry, while at the same time, it hasn't been very democratic at all for large, uh, large minorities. And there's been quite a lot of interesting commentary in the, in the, you know, since all of this, there's pointing to these basically opposing forces that that have always been at work uh, in US political development. And this battle between a 
a racial order uh, force uh, on the one hand and a more equal progressive uh, force uh, on the other hand. And they've been battling it out ever since uh, since the Civil War. Sometimes the the racial order parts have had the upper hand, like during Reconstruction in, in other areas. The more the progressive, the, the equal justice wing has had the upper hand, like under... In, in this in the civil rights era, and uh, and I, I think it's it's if we're if we're looking at the long run development of of democracy uh, in the U.S., I think it's important to realize that that battle is not completely over, and you still have large segments of the U.S. Uh, political system that seem to prefer some kind of racial order uh, to a pluralistic multicultural uh, democracy and and that has profound implications for how we evaluate and how we view the state of democracy uh, in the US yeah i really appreciate you bringing up that point Howard because a lot of people have said kind of this isn't us this isn't america this isn't the real america we need to come back together and um this doesn't reflect who we are. And and unfortunately, it actually does, I think. Um, it doesn't mean that, that this is everyone in America, but it's certainly an integral part of our history, like you said. And um, we have had democracy for some and not for everyone. And, and you can argue how democratic is that really. So um, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that, that uh, aspect of it into this conversation. Um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the, the word coup, <laughs> because <laughs> this has been thrown around a lot, and maybe for political scientists, it's it's very clear what this means, but uh, not for the average person. Um, Siriana, could you, could you just tell me, what is a coup, and was this a coup attempt, in your opinion? Right. No, of course, this has been uh, debated uh, quite a bit over the past days, and especially among political scientists, <laughs> including on social media, etc. And I think also even among political scientists, there is some disagreement as to exactly what a coup is and as to whether this was a coup. Uh, but I think so my the definition I would uh, follow when it comes to what a coup is, is the definition which is uh, um, it was um, given by Powell and Fine in a quite influential study, uh, where coup is understood as an um, illegal effort by uh, by either civilian or military elites um, to remove a sitting executive from from power. So it's sort of a, quite an elite focused definition of coup. So I think it's important to to sort of distinguish between what kind of events we're looking at if we're interested in whether a coup or, or a coup attempt has taken place in the U.S. recently. So first of all, if we look at the U.S. Capitol Hill riots, I, I would say that these events would not fall within this definition of a coup because this was uh, first and foremost um, something that was carried out by regular citizens and voters uh, rather than by elite insiders. So, of course, I mean, Trump played a very important part in encouraging this and maybe even initiating it. Uh, but in the end, it was a citizen-driven uh, event, these, these riots. Um, uh, another question, of course, is whether Trump, Donald Trump has made an attempt to, to carry out a coup during the past since the election, for instance, and whether his behavior has been a, a coup attempt. And I think that's a somewhat more difficult question. Uh, in one sense, we have seen him being so unwilling to accept uh, the election result. So in one sense, he, he has been willing to undermine 
uh, other democratic institutions uh, and sort of increase uh, his own uh, power. Um, in, in another sense, this would not sort of, of course, be a military coup, which is the most uh, common, or at least it used to be the most common form of a coup. So the coup conducted by the military. Uh, but it could be the case that Trump behavior falls within the definition of a self-coup, which is a coup that is conducted by by the executive and basically involves uh, the sitting executive uh, uh, either abruptly or gradually um, increasing his own uh, power. And this has actually been the most common form of coup during the past uh, decade. Historically, democracies often used, and most regimes used to uh, fall um, after military coups, but now it's becoming much more um, common. Uh, the democracies are gradually deteriorating due to elected political leaders concentrating power in their own hands. We've seen this in Turkey, we've seen this in, in Hungary, and uh, Trump certainly uh, has behavior that is similar to many of these uh, these uh, autocrats in other countries. And I'm wondering, could you maybe address the fact that there is now confirmation that there were some police officers uh, involved in this in this uh, insurrection? So, uh, for example, I, I'm from Seattle, and so this hit pretty hard for me. But there are at least two officers that are confirmed to have been part of the group of people that went into the Capitol building. And and I realize, obviously, this is very different from, from for example, a military or, or a state kind of sponsored coup like you were just discussing. But is this some kind of gray zone? I mean, what does this mean, for example, with uh, people's trust in institutions, uh, and especially if they uncover more uh, police officers or off-duty military who might have been involved? I mean, yes, of course, when it comes to the question of how this influences uh, public uh, perceptions, both of, of the democracy, but also state elites, I think it's it's likely to have a very damaging effect, not only sort of seeing who participated it and whether there was an overlap between those who participated and those who are sort of supposed to be law enforcement, but also now, so sort of, I think it's still... Uh, remains to get fully to the bottom of exactly why the police, the law enforcement and the police and the National Guard responded the way it did to these protests. Uh, I mean, we saw that the responses at least was quite different from um, the response to Black Lives Matter last year. And we still don't know exactly what happened behind the stage, I think. But we are starting to hear more and more about how there may have been political pressure, at least related to this decision, to, to that it took so long for the National Guard to intervene in these protests. And of course, if it comes out that uh, uh, even law enforcement response is so political and driven by sort of political pressure, that will, of course, uh, I think deteriorate people's trust in both law enforcement uh, and government officials. Yeah, it's a, so uh, one interesting thing, or at least I think interesting thing on this is that, so I also saw, you know, the reports uh, that police, some police officers were part of it. I also saw some interesting reporting this morning in Washington Post about uh, how the protesters or the rioters or whatever you want to call them, apparently got a bit surprised uh, by the fact that they they did get some pushback uh, from the capital police, and and apparently at some point the capital police was trying pretty hard to stop them from entering uh, the building, and it seemed or seems or this is anecdotal though, but it seems that many of the rioters were more or less expecting the police to be on their side, 
Uh, and I think that actually that <laughs> is fascinating from a research point of view. And I think it says a lot about uh, uh, different as segments of the U.S. population's trust in in the police in the U.S. And it also says something about the fundamental structural problem of policing uh, in the U.S., where it's clear that uh, some groups see the police as their allies, and apparently many of these white supremacists do see the police as their allies and are expecting the police to fall in line, while um, other um, groups in the U.S. basically see the police, or not just see, but experience the police as as an enemy that is out to uh, hurt them and, and harm them. And that... Uh, that polarization obviously is undermining uh, trust in the in the police in the U.S. Yeah, and so I think that is a perfect segue then to my my next question, which will be for you, Howard. Um, we can obviously make a pretty stark comparison uh, between this incident and the Black Lives Matter protests uh, last summer, and there have been a lot of kind of pictures circulating of just the, the comparison of the the police and military and National Guard forces that. Um, responded to Black Lives Matter protesters versus uh, this mob. And I, I just wanted you to maybe reflect on that a little bit, because I know you also followed that quite closely last summer. Yeah, I, I, I think by now it's, it's uh, impossible not to, 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 to see the, the difference uh, in, in how the security sector in, in the U.S. Uh, responded to the Black Lives Matter protests and how uh, and, and and how they responded to these protests and we know also from research for instance that uh, uh, protests that are uh, that are focused on police brutality uh, tend to be met by much more heavy-handed uh, um, police brutality and use of police force uh, than protests that are directed against other things and you know these riots were not uh, directed against that uh, it is, you know, I, 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 there's still a lot of stuff we don't know right now, right? So uh, we don't know whether this was just a complete uh, failure of of planning, which I guess it could be, uh, or if there's something more malicious uh, uh, going on, and, and if there was actually sabotage both at the both at the higher levels and at the uh, at the uh, lower levels. But I think, you know, just looking at the pictures and looking at the video, even even if if um, the police had been out in more appropriate force levels in in in, in DC uh, on this day, I, I think it's inconceivable uh, that they'd use the same uh, type and level of violence and force against these protesters as they would have done against Black Lives Matter protesters. If you know. I, I, I think just imagining whether, you know, imagine if a Black Lives Matter protest had uh, descended on the Capitol and tried to get inside. I, I think we can all you know, imagine what that would look like. It would, it would most probably be uh, be uh, bloody, I'm sorry to say, but I think that's what would have happened. And that, again, just points to the, the very deep-seated problems of uh, policing in the U.S., uh, today. Yes, and and I think your point about whether it was malicious, intentional, etc. Um, obviously, like you said, we don't know yet exactly what's happened. But 
uh, on some level, I, I think that they simply didn't perceive this as much as as as, as much of a threat as as they would Black Lives Matter protesters. And there's a long long history in the U.S. for why that's the case. And it's a very very racialized uh, topic. So, so yeah, I'm, oh yeah, I just want to add one thing. Sorry to that, Indigo, and that is. Uh... Because uh, I saw um, uh, Omar Vassov at, at Princeton actually refer to these uh, riots as a lynching, which is which I think is an extremely interesting frame uh, to look at this through. So he, he's basically looking at the the attack uh, on on the capital as a an attempted as a lynching as a lynching attempt, and we know mm. throughout U.S. history uh, that lynchings were they've been described as festivals of violence right uh, and the police and security sector often participated uh, in those awful horrible um, uh, events and i think again here you see this long-run pattern in in u.s democratic or political development where these uh this this fight against those who actually want racial order and the uh, tools they use uh, is, uh, is still very far from from over uh, in the U.S. That's a fascinating um, comparison and, and way to describe it, and we'll have to add that reading in the description for the podcast. Um, but Sidiana, since we're talking about violence, uh, your research includes looking at elements of violence in uh, transitions, and I mean, I hope this is not a <laughs> transition. But can you can you talk about? the way that violence was used here um, by the mob, but also the, the lack of violence by the state, or, or also there was some violence. There was a woman that, that was shot. So, um, yeah, how would you view this in the context of your own research and looking at other countries and governments as well? Right. I mean, what's so what's so interesting is that both whether the state uses violence and and whether the the rioters or the protesters use violence, how that sort of influences their prospects of succeeding when it comes to influencing politics the way they want, but also how it influences uh, uh, public perceptions and the perceptions of these protests uh, among elites. And we know from uh, global historical studies of protest movements that if a protest movement uses violence, uh, that tends to uh, reduce uh, the sympathy of, of standbiters and, and people just observing this uh, uh, when it comes to sort of uh, viewing this as a legitimate cause and viewing this as a legitimate protest. And one thing we did see in the aftermath of these riots were that uh, many uh, members of Republicans that used to be supporters of, of Trump now pulled away. Uh, many uh, White House staff uh, decided to resign. Uh, and I think if this uh, right and this uh, movement on January 6th had been able to sort of stick to nonviolent uh, resistant methods, for instance, just a peaceful demonstration or sort of standing outside of US Capitol Hill with banners, uh, then reactions among elites would have been would have been differently. And this is very much in line with global evidence uh, on how uh, the type of uh, methods and strategies that protest movements use influence uh, people's perceptions. That is very interesting and, and quite a fascinating counterfactual to think about, um, because I think you're right. I think now it's reached a point where politicians in the U.S. just can't really justify um their kind of involvement and that's why they're all jumping ship uh and you know i argue that it's 
really far too little too late and they're just trying to save themselves but but i think you're right that they would have had a much easier time uh sticking with that message if if it hadn't uh turned into this uh we're unfortunately running out of time but i want to just throw a question to both of you uh before we finish and i know i said that we wouldn't speculate but i can never resist a little bit of speculation so i'll start with holvard um you you kind of said that you felt that you were watching democracy die, and that's really a, a strong statement. So, what do you think this this means for the future of the U.S.? So, Inigo, I'm actually optimistic. Uh, so, um, I started by saying that I I it felt like I saw democracy dying, uh, but you know, having thought more about it, uh, and especially having seen other people's uh, thinking about it. I think there is an argument here to be made about this not at all being the end uh, of democracy in the U.S., but maybe actually the beginning of the next chapter. Uh, I think it is uh, it is worth noting that these white supremacist groups and these uh, these Republican groups felt that they needed to use violence to enforce their order. Uh, and you could argue that they feel that they need to use violence because they're not winning anymore at the ballot box. You know, uh, they uh, lost both of the uh, runoff elections uh, in Georgia. We have the first ever black senator uh, elected uh, from, from, from Georgia. So I think there's a case here to be made that this could be the last, uh, definitely horrible and violent, but the last dying gasp uh, of an old white supremacist racial order in the US, and that this might actually just as much be the beginning of a more just, more more equal, more, uh, more fundamentally multicultural democratic order uh, in the US. Well, it's always nice to have a dose of optimism. Uh, and I, I do appreciate you mentioning Georgia because unfortunately that amazing, amazing news uh, has really just completely been lost uh, in all of this chaos and violence. Um, so that is that is a very good reminder. Sidiana, what do you think? Uh, do you dare to speculate? <laughs> I mean, I wish I also could have rounded this off on an optimistic note, but continue to shape democ- um, U.S. democracy in the future is the fact that for, I think the last survey I saw was that 45% of Republicans support the violent riots that took place on January 6th, and an even larger share of Republicans actually believe now that the U.S. election was stolen from them, and how that will influence the U.S. in the future, that most people actually don't think that Biden is the legitimate president of the country, uh, I think that's ex- extremely um, dangerous because um, when it comes down to it, what democracy really depends on is that people are willing to accept peaceful transitions to democracy and that they're willing to accept uh, the winner of an election as the leader. That's sort of what the legitimacy of democracy is based on. Uh, and without that, I, I worry that we'll um, continue to see more vulnerable democracy um, that is more, more likely to experience these kind of events again, unfortunately. Well, thank you both for your very interesting, uh, thoughtful uh, responses to what has been an absolutely horrible week. And and I think that this has, for me at least, been very educational and just brought some more perspective to uh, what happened and what we might see in the future. So thank you both very much. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. 
This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trig Hauger. Music by Martin Rennemann.